0: Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. On this podcast, we talk about everything related to heavy metal toxicity and detoxification and women's issues as well, like today's show with Lisa Hendricks and Jack. Today we talk about your menstrual cycle and how this fifth vital sign is indicative of a lot of different health issues, indicative of toxicity. It can even be indicative of gluten sensitivity. And Lisa's a big advocate of tracking your fifth vital sign, your menstrual cycle, not only for fertility but menstrual cycle awareness because it can also be clues to your overall health. And this show, it's packed full of juicy tidbits and aha moments. Even for me, I learned some things. We talk about toxic tampons. We talk about alternative uh, methods of dealing with the menstrual cycle. You know, there's uh, you know d- different products that you can use today besides just the uh, tampons. And we also talk about hormonal contraceptives and how those can trash your health in a number of different ways, causing recurrent yeast infections, depression, low libido, all things that I suffered from being on the pill for 25 years. And we also talk about uh, you know. How toxins affect your fertility and your menstrual cycle. Just such a good show today that uh, I, I had a really good time on this show. That's all I can say. <laughs> so I know some of you guys listening to this podcast are concerned about heavy metals and chemicals and how they are impacting your health and are they causing your symptoms or your diagnosis? I've been studying heavy metals for well over a decade, and I assure you that everyone has heavy metals to some degree. The question is not do you have them, it's what metals do you have and how much of it do you have in your body. And metals and chemicals can outright cause or exacerbate almost every imaginable symptom and diagnosis that people are dealing with today. So if you're doing everything right in your health, you're eating a great diet, taking great supplements, you're exercising, just generally feel like you're taking really good care of yourself and you still don't feel well and are frustrated, I urge you to take my two-minute quiz at heavymetalsquiz.com so you can determine by this quiz your general level of heavy metals in your body. And after you take the quiz, you get a video series telling you what the next steps are, what you can do to take control of your health and get your life back. So go to heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children, by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, Fertility and overall health. You can learn more about Lisa and her work at FertilityFriday.com. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm
1: excited to be here,
0: Wendy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the menstrual cycle and why we should consider that a vital sign?
1: Well, um, basically a vital sign is a measure of how our body is functioning. And if you think about the most common vital signs that we're most familiar with, that would be our temperature, our blood pressure, our respiration rate, our heart rate. And we all have a sense that if you go to your doctor and they're measuring your vitals, there's a, a certain set of what we would consider to be normal. And obviously if you your blood pressure is too high or if your body temperature is too low or something like that, not only does it tell the doctor that something's wrong, but it also gives A roadmap of where to look because high blood pressure means certain things you know all those types of things so when I say that the menstrual cycle with regular ovulation is like a vital sign essentially what I'm saying is that the menstrual cycle plays a very similar role and so for a woman of reproductive age When her body is functioning normally, when she's healthy, then we would expect her menstrual cycle to fall in normal parameters. If she loses her cycle, if she has irregular ovulation, if she stops ovulating, then that's just as an important of a marker of her overall health. And in the same way that any of the other vital signs would give the doctor a roadmap, it would also give you some clues as to where to look. Um, And I think for most women, it's surprising to find out how intimately your menstrual cycle is actually connected to your overall health.
0: Yeah. And also uh, if women have really difficult periods as well. If when they do end up having it, it's, they have a lot of PMS or a lot of pain or a lot of, you know, really like, you know, severe mood swings, the sign that maybe something's going on that's not quite right.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, when I talk about the menstrual cycle, what immediately comes to mind is the period, right? And um, I was having a conversation with a, a client pretty recently. And, you know, I asked, like, how long is your cycle? And she was like, you know, four to five days. And I was like, no, no, no your menstrual cycle, um, the whole thing. And so we often have this idea of it's just our period and, you know, fast forward, like we don't really know what happens in between. And so, you know, the menstrual cycle starts the first day of your true characteristic flow and goes all the way until the day before the next one. And so, I mean, we can talk about what a healthy period is like. um, But I think it's also important to have a sense of the whole cycle so that we recognize that there's more to it than just either the length or, just the period.
0: Yes, yeah. I track mine. I have an app called Flow and I track my cycle on there just so I can kind of keep tabs. I kind of know when Aunt Flow is showing up and and know uh you know and just track it so I kind of have an idea of when I'm ovulating and how long it is, and just so I know when it's going off course. Like say because I'm, you know, 47, so I'm gonna be going into paramenopause or entering into that stage soon. So I want to just track things, but let's talk about what a normal healthy menstrual cycle is supposed to look like.
1: Well, you know, to start with, we could talk about the length. As women were told that the menstrual cycle is 28 days long, and um, it's important to know that there's actually a range of what would be considered normal in terms of length. So, in a healthy menstrual cycle, it can be anywhere from about 24 days to 35 days. And I always like to say we're not robots, so some fluctuation is actually normal. So, if your cycle is sometimes 30 days or, um, you know, 27 days or 32 days, it doesn't automatically mean that there's a problem. Um, You know, in addition to the length of the menstrual cycle, what I could do is take you through the whole cycle. And um, I like to stress that it's not necessarily that one cycle, one thing is off. What would indicate if there's an issue would be a consistent pattern. So if it can, if it kind of persists cycle after cycle. And so, first of all, we'd start with your period. And, you know, a healthy period lasts anywhere from about three to seven days. We would expect it to start moderate to heavy. I like to say the period is. Kind of should be like a sentence. There should be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then it should stop. And uh, so the first two to three days tend to be the heaviest, and then it starts to taper off. We would expect your bleeding to be a color of red, Um, you know, and even if you have some spotting, it could be brown in color, maybe a little bit pink. But if we're getting more like black or crushed blueberries, that could indicate a problem. Um, You know, a lot of women have clots, but if you have significant clots frequently that could indicate that something's wrong. And just to put it out there, although it's really common for women to experience pain with menstruation, it's not normal. And, you know, in any other situation, pain would indicate a problem. <laughs> but somehow with periods, we're so uh, used to the idea that they're supposed to be hard and difficult that a lot of us just don't even think anything of it. And um, I was having a conversation with uh, another client recently and we were having a similar conversation about pain and I found that it's really common for women to really downplay their pain because we all know someone who has it worse than us, right? And so she was describing her pain and I was asking her how bad it was and um, and she was kind of like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I said, well, what if your partner was having that pain in his penis for a couple of days every <laughs> every month? Um, I think it's really helpful for us to recognize that in a healthy cycle, we would expect to have very minimal, if any, pain basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, even to think that on average it takes a woman anywhere from eight to 12 years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis shows us how, how we don't really take pain seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> you know I have a couple friends that, that have that also, and you just maybe they just start to think is their period super, super painful and they don't know how another woman's period is or, or maybe not talking about that. And that it's not normal. I mean, I I know for myself, uh, I had a very kind of you know easy period for a long, long time, and then I reached a period of my life where I feel like I had a lot of metals and toxins and and you know xenoestrogens in my body that I hadn't been addressing, and my periods got more and more difficult, more emotional, more rough PMS, uh, longer periods, more cramping. And then when I detoxed that started having, you know, more, paying more attention to detox and my diet and lifestyle, my periods got a lot easier. And so so I know for me, toxins played a role in that. Um, so I know it's, uh, you know, it's really, really important to be having this conversation about what is normal and what isn't, what warrants addressing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and so to take you kind of through the menstrual cycle after the period finishes, Um, we would be entering kind of the first stage of the cycle, which is the pre-ovulatory phase. So we can divide the cycle kind of in two there. And as you approach ovulation, I mean, you'd expect to have a couple days before your period, before you start seeing your cervical mucus. But um, as you approach ovulation and your estrogen levels are rising, you would actually expect to have, you know, about two to seven days of cervical mucus. And so it could look like creamy white hand lotion, or it could look like kind of raw, clear, stretchy egg whites so some women have enough that they can actually stretch it between their fingers Uh, but you know that's the two main ways that you might observe mucus or even if you're just going to the bathroom like you usually are you might notice that there's a couple days of the cycle where you go to wipe and it's really slippery or you got to wipe a couple of times Um, but in a healthy cycle we would expect to see you know at least one day of the clear mucus or have at least one day of that lubricative sensation and then ovulation In in order to have a healthy cycle, you need to have ovulation (laughs) um, because that's how we make our hormones. That's how we make progesterone. And so then after ovulation, we would expect your mucus to dry up and your period to come about 12 to 14 days later. And so by breaking the menstrual cycle down basically into those different parts, it can give you a sense of how we could be breaking down the cycle and actually using it as a vital sign. Understanding that, you know, issues with your period could mean certain things. Issues with your cervical mucus uh, or your cervical mucus production, things like that, could mean certain things. Um, If you're ovulating or not pretty important. And also the second half of your cycle, your luteal phase length. So the length of the second half of the cycle is directly related to your progesterone production, which is crucial for fertility for women who, well, not just fertility, just for also overall health, but fertility, for instance, if your luteal phase is too short, if your progesterone is too low, that can make it more difficult to carry a pregnancy to term or even to, um, for the egg to implant, you know, when it's time. So there's a lot of different implications and, um, just of paying attention to the cycle, what it can mean for fertility, but also for health in general.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about toxins. So toxins and heavy metals and xenoestrogens in our environment uh, emitted by pesticides and plastics and other things uh, can dramatically affect our hormones and the menstrual cycle. Can you talk a little about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, if you think about the menstrual cycle and basically the hormonal interplay of it, in a healthy cycle, you're producing estrogen, your natural estrogen, for the first half of the cycle as your follicles develop in your ovaries. And then once you ovulate, you're producing progesterone for the second half. So you're still producing estrogen as well in the second half of the cycle. But if your progesterone production is normal, it's balancing out. Um, So for example, you mentioned PMS, women who have significant PMS symptoms, typically kind of that week before your period stage, when you look at what the research has to to say about their hormone levels. So for instance, the balance between progesterone and estrogen in that phase of the cycle, often the progesterone is either dipping kind of sharply or overall just low. So then you end up with... um, more estrogen relative to progesterone than would be ideal,
0: and you're and, crying a lot more. And yes,
1: <laughs> so there's all upset. of those. <laughs> so all this, all this, you
0: know,
1: the the different symptoms that you might experience, like the emotional, you know, emotional stuff, the crying, um, anxiety, even some bloating, and all of the different, uh, you know, depression, the different symptoms you might experience, breast tenderness. The list really goes on and on.
0: Anger. Um,
1: Um, But it's related to this hormonal balance. So when we talk about toxins and and xenoestrogen exposure, um, you know, a lot of these chemicals and so it's coming from all angles. So we could start with beauty products. Uh, You know, as a woman, all the beauty products that are made for us, unless we're specifically searching for non-toxic alternatives, all contain perfumes and parabens and just a variety of different toxins that fall under the umbrella of xenoestrogens. I'm sure you've talked about this constantly, endlessly.
0: Yeah, I talked about um, it yesterday <laughs> on a Facebook Live because women, they know what they're supposed to be buying, but you know, they, it's, it's hard to resist the department store creams and makeup and all that stuff, but there's a, a price to pay.
1: Well, and I mean, so when you think about those chemicals, if, you know, referring to them as, you know, estrogens, essentially what it means is that they're not, they're, well, first of all, they're man-made chemicals. So these chemicals are not found anywhere in nature. So it's not even like um, we're talking about something that we could even consider natural. So they're artificial chemicals. They're not the same chemical structure as our own estrogens in our body, but they're similar enough that when they interact, when, you know, when we inhale them and put them on our skin, eat them, whatever the case, um, they activate our estrogen receptors. But since they're not the same, they activate them in different ways and they can interfere with our normal hormonal production. So in order for the menstrual cycle to happen normally, and because it is driven by hormones, the more that we expose ourselves to synthetic chemicals, the more negative of an effect it can have. And so from, you know, beauty care products to pesticides on foods to, you know, off-gassing of your carpet in your house to the pots and pans that you use to cook with, uh, or the cleaning supplies. Like it really goes on and on and it can feel really overwhelming, especially for a woman who's just discovering this. Um, but as you personally, like you said, you had the experience yourself and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some women listening who've had this, the same experience when you decided to kind of clean up all of these different products kind of throughout your house and your beauty products and things like that, you found that your cycle improved. Oh, yeah. And yeah. For- for, some women, for women who are experiencing painful periods or bad PMS symptoms, just by kind of taking stock of the different products that you're using and all those different types of things and just really starting to get rid of that chemical exposure and also even looking at menstrual products, uh, scary to think that, you know, you buy the tampons and pads from the stores and they're loaded with dioxins and chemicals and all kinds of stuff. And and it's putting- so
0: crazy. It's so crazy. We're putting these this stuff inside us in our or on our mucus membranes, where they just readily uh, absorb into our system. Is better than in the skin, so you you have to be thinking about organic tampons and maxi pads.
1: Yeah. Well, just to put it out there, there was a study done, uh, I believe it was by the FDA, and they just sampled a bunch of different uh, menstrual products, and they were all found to contain dioxins. And if you think about the materials that are made, so, you know, tampons, cotton, 90%-ish, it's around 90% of the cotton produced is all genetically modified. And when, when things are genetically modified, the reason that they do that is just so they can spray toxins on it, and the plant won't die like that's the whole purpose
0: of genetics yeah so it's full, <laughs> of, it's full of herbicide called glyphosate and and also the dioxine where's that coming from the chlorine bleach that they use yeah. to bleach the tamas that's why they're pure why does snow why does the driven snow and so you don't want that you know you there's other alternatives out there and they're a little bit more expensive but you know it, it's worth it because we just don't want that you know put that inside us
1: Well, I would say not necessarily Um, when you said they're a little bit more expensive. I would say not necessarily because it depends on what you choose to use. So, uh, for instance, yes, if you're buying organic pads and tampons specifically, then that often can be a bit more expensive. But then again, I mean, there's also there's the argument of like the long term costs of exposing your body to toxins. But beyond just that little bit of a price difference, for instance, if you were to choose a reusable option like a menstrual cup. uh, So I started using menstrual cups when I was I think I was about 18 or 19 years old this is a really long time ago and that back then to date myself there was I remember there was like one company (laughs) so when I bought my you know my first menstrual cup there was the keeper and then the diva cup was like the new company or whatever and now there's like who knows how many companies there are that make these so they're a lot more affordable and if you think about it if you buy a menstrual cup and it lasts you five years or something like that it's you know it's 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 way cheaper (laughs) yeah yeah, i
0: never thought about that i've never used that for some reason but it's you know it's reusable it's more environmentally friendly and i have a couple of girlfriends that use them they love it they feel better about you know not throwing all the you know the excess trash and plastics and stuff into the environment that's are produced with the tampons
1: yeah well and i remember when i was um when i was kind of discovering all of this um you know, it was literally my post-high school feminist phase in, in university. I went to this talk about menstrual products. And so kind of, I was like wide-eyed, probably sitting in the front taking notes. But <laughs> <laughs> I remember that they, you know, one of the girls, she took out a cup of water and she put a tampon in it and just let it hang out there so that we could see. I mean, it, it widens quite wide, but our bodies don't work like that. So you kind of see it and it's kind of like, that doesn't really seem to address the, you know, the blood and tissue. Because we don't our our periods are not just blue liquid so it's kind of first of all that was yeah. interesting but when she popped it out of the water in the water was swimming all the little fibers Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah. because it's because it's made with all these synthetic fibers. Right. And so literally, she popped it out of the water. And there are all these little fibers swimming in there. And she's, you know, that's what's in your vagina. And I remember just like, to this day, I obviously still remember it. Um, But there's a couple things is just in general, you can kind of think about when you when it comes to care products. So if you wouldn't eat it, you shouldn't put it on your skin because it's basically the same. So anything that you're putting on your skin is, is basically being ingested. But also for menstrual products, you know, you, you shouldn't really put anything inside your vagina that you wouldn't put inside your mouth. I know it's kind of an awkward thing to say, but it just think about all those fibers. So in addition to the chemicals and the dioxins and all the different things, it's just very disconcerting to think about because um, your vagina
0: is just as absorbent as your mouth, right? Yeah. So. Oh, I love this! I learned something new. I did not know. I didn't. I never really thought of the the, the little particles that might get into your your vagina. I never thought about yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Well, and these the particles, so the the synthetic fibers that are create. So it's not like happenstance. They're they hire engineers to create material that's highly absorbent. So. A tampon is like technology. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so if you think about it, it's just, yeah. So there's all the issues with menstrual products. I feel like we kind of took an, a very important tangent on menstrual products, um, just as one of the main sources potentially of different chemicals. But especially if you think about the, the placement, the location right there in your pelvic cavity for women who have suffered with painful periods or endometriosis or fibroids or anything like that, um, switching to um, alternative menstrual products. And I, the one other type of menstrual product that I didn't mention is reusable pads and tampons. Mm-hmm. And within that category, you can also buy kind of regular cotton or organic cotton, even with the, within the reusable. Uh, but there's a lot of different options. And, and there's also now period panties, which are kind of neat. So they you know the panties and they look cute but you could actually it actually absorbs a certain amount of uh, bleeding so there's lots of different options and and that's helpful because you know everybody isn't going to gravitate to washable pads or anything like that but um, if you have any concerns about hormone balance about period pain about even pms symptoms for some women just by getting rid of their you know store-bought heavily dioxin <laughs>
0: toxic toxic tampons yeah
1: <laughs> uh, some women find that their pain significantly huh. reduces like I'm not making promises here but for some women that's the key and it really helps them to shift that where you know and many of them have been experiencing it for years
0: yeah that's uh it's a really really key I mean every little bit helps every like small step adds up to big results that you take so you have to really think about Take inventory of every little area of your life, every product you buy, and reevaluate it. And so, let's talk about contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, the pill, and that you know a lot of women aren't uh, aren't really knowledgeable about all the different um, types of birth control out there. There's lots and lots of options, and so let's talk a little bit about you know how oral contraceptives affect the body. And what makes them so effective in preventing pregnancy? Oh, I'd love to.
1: Um, <laughs> as you were mentioning uh, oral contraceptives, I just wanted to say that often when I'm asked about xenoestrogens, um, especially right now where it's 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 a trend that a lot of us are switching our products, we're looking for organic food. It's like this disconnect because the, the granddaddy or grandmama of all xenoestrogens is the birth control pill um, because when you eat, kale that has been sprayed with pesticide, they didn't design that pesticide specifically to shut down your endocrine system. Mm
0: Mm-hmm
1: but that's what the pill was designed for. Uh, So (laughs) the question that you asked was, um, how do oral contraceptives work and why are they so effective, I believe? And so there's three kind of main fronts that oral contraceptives work on. The first is by suppressing ovulation. And um, what that means is that when you're on the pill, you're not actually getting periods anymore. Um, the pill basically shuts down your normal cycle. It shuts down the, the normal function of your endocrine system. And it has to do that because that's why it works. Um, without an egg, you can't get pregnant. So, uh, But I think it's really important to make that distinction because a lot of women still believe that when they're taking the pill and then they have their, you know, sugar pills for that seven-day period or whatever it is, that they're getting their period. They, you know, If they go to a doctor and they have irregular cycles and the doctor says, okay, we're going to give you the pill and it's going to regulate your cycles, we all kind of have been taught that and believe it, but it's not true. It doesn't regulate anything. It just shuts everything down and then gives you a fake – Uh, You know, withdrawal bleed is what it's called when we take out the medication for the couple of days. Uh, So the first thing is by shutting down ovarian function and that then reduces your natural production of estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. And then the second way that the pill works is by thinning the endometrial lining. And so when they kind of measure the endometrial lining in order for pregnancy to occur, uh, according to what the research uh, shows, and a lot of the research is done on IVF, uh, women who are going through IVF, the uterine lining has to be at least, say, like eight, nine, ideally 10 10 millimeters or more in order for pregnancy to occur. So when you're on the pill and other types of birth control, the endometrial lining can be as thin as like two to four millimeters. So um, a very specific way that it prevents pregnancy because we know that, you know, even though the main job of most hormonal birth control is to shut down ovulation, all hormonal contraceptives don't suppress ovulation 100% of the time. So occasionally ovulation might occur. And so there's kind of these backup measures. Uh, And then the third way is by preventing your cervix from producing fertile quality mucus. Uh, So, you know, outside of your fertile window, just in the general sense, when you're not on the pill, your cervix naturally closes um, outside of that window. And when you are post ovulation, your cervix actually fills with a thick mucus plug that prevents sperm from being able to enter. So the pill basically creates that all the time. <laughs> and so women who are on the pill, especially women who've been on it for a really long time, they may, you know, how we talked about cervical mucus before, perhaps they haven't seen it ever, or perhaps they literally have, have just not seen it for so long that they kind of forgot about it. Um, so, so yeah, we can kind of, but that the main three ways that the pill or why the pill is so effective.
0: Yeah. And what are some of the most common side effects of oral contraceptives on or the pill?
1: Um, Well, some of the most common side effects are the mood side effects. Uh, So I mentioned that, you know, one of the ways that the pill operates is by suppressing ovarian function and that suppresses the amount of testosterone that you produce. And so um, I think the more common effects of the pill and in some ways lesser known would be depression and low libido. Um, so, that was I mean... me
0: for twenty twenty five years. I'm like, oh. what is libido? Like, what are all these people talking about? I have no, no, I no clue, because it it just it destroys your libido and it dramatically affects your relationships when you're not as interested in sex or engaged in it as your partner is. And I think it has a lot of big consequences in women's relationships. But you know, you you have to look at alternative methods of birth control that are not hormonal.
1: Hmm. Well, it just breaks my heart to hear that, um, because so you can hear that, but then you know what I did, of course, is I wanted to see what the research had to say about it. You know, I wanted to see, okay, so you know we know it's associated with depression and the libido, but why? And so um, the pill suppresses your testosterone production, uh, but it also increases your production of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, which uh, the example I think about is if you've ever seen one of those experiments with the the, uh, iron filings and a magnet. So, you know, SHBG is essentially like the magnet that sops up your free testosterone. So women on the pill have significantly less, less than half the testosterone of a woman who is not. Um, And so, of course, that affects... Libido. It, it can also affect mood. And what's interesting is that you, the tissues in a, in your in our vulvas are very sensitive to testosterone. And so when we lower the testosterone level so dramatically, uh, it increases our chances of developing painful sex as well. And so there's research that has been done. Um, some of the more controversial research that I was posting that got some really interesting uh, reactions. Uh, but there was one, <laughs> there was uh, one study in particular where so they gave women um, birth control for about a three-month study period, and they measured the clitoral volume as well as the thickness of the vulvar tissues around the vaginal opening, and so what they found was that all of the study participants did um, experience a reduction in their clitoral volume. So said another way, the pill shrunk their clits.
0: Hmm. Wow.
1: And uh, the average shrinkage was 20%. Wow! And it was also shown to thin the vulvar tissues, particularly around the opening of the vulva. And so for women who experience painful sex specifically, it's often pain with insertion around those tissues. And, um, You know, I've interviewed a number of different women who've had negative experiences with the pill, uh, and often it's testosterone cream that is the thing that actually resolves the issue. Uh, And so, and just to put it out there as well, the younger that you are when you go on the pill, the more likely you are to experience painful sex and, and all those types of things. And I often wonder, so Wendy, you mentioned that you, you know, the pill kind of, had its way with your libido, yeah.
0: basically.
1: Way, I often wonder, you know, if you go on the pill when you're 16 or something like that. Like I didn't really know myself that well when I was 16. I didn't really know what my Libido was or whatever, right? And so, what if you went on the pill so young? I often wonder if you would even know, um, because you wouldn't necessarily have something to compare to. Versus if you were already, you know, a grown woman and had had some relationships and then went on it and then noticed a difference. Yeah, and you you're like,
0: oh, I don't like this. This is, you know, destroying my sex life or what have you. But I didn't have that. I went on it when I was 13 because my mother, my mother had a pregnancy when she was 14 and she wanted to do everything she could to prevent that same experience for me. So she made me go on it. I thought, great, you know, I wasn't sexually active yet, but she just in case I was doing something she didn't know, she wanted me to be on it to prevent this really uh, traumatic thing that happened to her when she was young. Um, but unfortunately, it had a lot of consequences for, for my health.
1: Hmm. So it's, it's so hard, honestly, when I hear that, because of course she was really coming from a place of wanting to protect you. And um, so we've really scratched the surface of the side effects of the pill and we can keep going. One of the things I always talk about, though, when I talk about side effects is that because uh, I come across as like super anti-pill and ultimately I believe that the most important thing is to, for us to have informed consent um, because the pill is pretty complicated it's tied up with women's liberation and you know it's toted as being this like the key to sexual liberation of women except it's shrinking our clitoris and taking our libido away so yeah. there's a conflict <laughs> there's a conflict here so now that the pill has been out for a really long time and we can kind of appreciate that we're liberated like you know what I mean like I'm being tongue-in-cheek here but yeah, yeah. Um, It's okay to question the pill because as women, we have the right to know uh, what the side effects are, complete informed consent. And I believe that there's three kind of camps that we would all find ourselves in. So if we all had all the information about the side effects, some of us would take it for just as long. Some of us would take it but kind of be kind of on hyper alert. And then if there was something that you experienced, you would know about it so that you could make some decisions. And then some of us would just be like, well, that's too much for me. I don't want it. Um, but see, the, the, the problem is that if you're experiencing, say, depression, libido, painful sex, um, recurrent yeast infections, because it disrupts the um, you know the balance of bacteria uh, if you're experiencing any of these side effects and you don't know that they could possibly be associated with the pill you often just think it's you like oh i'm just not that sexual of a person i'm just not that into it.
0: that's what um, i thought i just, thought oh i just have a low libido and that's just who i am and always have been and it's just the farthest thing from the truth yeah and it, it's it's uh also when people go to their medical doctors the medical doctor is not looking at these symptoms and looking at the pill or their other hormonal contraceptive, like the Nuva ring or whatever, as a potential, uh, you know, cause, causative factor in those symptoms.
1: Well, and there have been some really interesting and disturbing studies that have been done where they're surveying... Adolescent girls, basically, and adolescent girls who are on birth control are much more likely to also be on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why this is a problem. Because if you then have symptoms of depression, it's not necessary. It's not necessarily that you're going to go to your doctor, and they're going to say, "Okay, well, we know." because there's all the research that the pill is associated with depression and other mood-related symptoms. So let's first, you know, take you off of it or maybe, you know, switch it at least or do something. But let's let's take you off of it for three months and see if it improves, right? That would be the logical thing to do. Uh, but we know that that's not exactly what happens because a lot of these other side effects, we kind of know about the increased risk of blood clots and stroke, deep vein thrombosis, which are very significant. So it's not, it's worth, it, I mean, there's 21 year. I've interviewed two 20. They they were 20 years old around that time when they had strokes. So, this is a huge problem. But at the same time, the more common uh, side effects that are actually happening, a lot of us don't really know to attribute it to birth control.
0: Yeah, I I didn't. I mean, I definitely suffered from depression the entire mild depression the whole time I was on oral contraceptives. And do you know how much money I spent on therapy? Thinking that, I mean, a decade thinking not, oh, I, I just got to figure out some sort of like cognitive behavioral therapy, or maybe it's like gratitude or maybe like what's going on. I have a, a really good life, but you know, I, uh, it was the pill that was causing my mild depression, not something external outside of myself or mindset or something like that. And I think a lot of women experience that also. Let's
1: see Wendy when you share stuff like that with me, it really, this is why I'm still doing it. Cause it just makes me so upset on behalf, on your behalf. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I survived the pill, you know, right. worse things could have happened, but it's, it's just sad that uh, a lot of women are taking medications and having consequences and just don't know why I think there's something wrong with them.
1: Well, and I just want to share. So I mentioned that, you know, because it suppresses testosterone, that's one of the reasons it could affect mood. But I also want to talk about the nutrient depletion on the pill. The pill is known to deplete B vitamins, including vitamin B12, vitamin B6. And vitamin B6 in particular is associated with our production of serotonin. And so when we're depleted of vitamin B6, it disrupts tryptophan metabolism. And what's interesting about vitamin B6, oh, I should also say that it depletes folic acid. Uh, but what's interesting about vitamin B6 is that the pill depletes it so severely that you would have to take, uh, I believe it was between 20 to 39 times the RDA to make up for it. Uh, So, you know, I might not be getting the numbers exactly right, but the RDA is something like 1.2, you know, micrograms or something like that. You have to take 40 times that daily just to make up for it. And so I just want to put out there that there are there's a specific link in the research, you know, to depression in in a multitude of ways. I think as women, especially for anyone who's ever been in that situation of actually being in her doctor's office, you know, there's something wrong, I don't feel like myself, etc. and basically pat on the head, like it couldn't be the pill goal. And I hear stories like that all the time. So I feel like I can say that. I feel like it's really important to lend some credence, some science, some hard, you know, pressed evidence so that uh, for any woman who's listening, who's felt this way and has maybe even been gaslighted a little bit by her practitioners, like, no, it's real. And there's actual, there's a lot of research and it wasn't hard to find. I think that was one of the things that made me a little bit even more infuriated it wasn't hard to find the research as to specifically why the pills associated with an increased risk of depression and anxiety. And one other thing that's helpful to think about, if so, the pill. It's associated with nutrient depletion. It changes the way that we're um, processing these uh, these different vitamins and nutrients. For some women, they'll start taking it and they'll have significant reactions right away. So there's some women who literally, like, they take the pill for a week and they're having panic attacks. And, like, so they just have to come off of it because for them it's just so apparent right away. There's women who take the pill for eight years, ten years, and then start getting panic attacks and just think they're going crazy because – The pill, the box was checked 10 years ago, so they're not even trying to make the connection. It's often a desperate Google moment when they kind of make that connection because they're just like, what is this? How is it possible that all of a sudden I could be having this? So I think it's really important as women for us to have an opportunity to know what those side effects are so that at least if it takes a while to kick in or something like that, then you can be like, oh, I listened to that podcast and she said something about panic attacks. Let me see if it could be this. Like, that's all we need. We just need to know what it's doing
0: to us yes i love this podcast it's so good (laughs) you're so you have so much knowledge this is awesome yeah and it's so important for women to like you said to listen to podcasts like this and have these aha moments that's why i do this so i love doing this because i had some aha moments too (laughs) i love it so (laughs) so let's discuss maybe some alternative uh, contraceptive methods so mental cycle charting for conception and birth control, as a way to, you know, preserve fertility, and you know, and how can women successfully use this fertility awareness for birth control?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, of course, as a fertility awareness educator, that gives me a, a certain perspective, and I personally have been using the method for almost 20 years. Uh, so, I suppose the challenge, especially for women who are just discovering it, is that. We still associate fertility awareness with the Rhythm Method and still believe that it's kind of this ineffective, archaic kind of calendar, rhythm-y type of thing. And so with the Rhythm Method, it was very much based on your calculator, So, you know, if you take six cycles and you calculate how many days they are and then you divide it, you can, you know, the, the, the thought behind it is that your cycle is basically always going to be the same. So if we can figure it out, then we can just like time it based on the days, but that's not how the human body works. And so from my seat, especially because I've seen my own charts fluctuate over the years, uh, you know, I've, I've have a thyroid issue that I've identified through charting years ago, and uh, when I first started charting, my cycles were on the longer side, and I made some changes, and over the years, I've kind of seen it, and then I've had two children in there, so I've seen how the cycle fluctuates, so I can say confidently, um, that, you know, there's no woman alive that ovulates on day 14 every single time for her whole life. It's actually not. It's, it's on, if you believe in the Easter Bunny or something like that, it would be right right up there with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a real thing. And so with fertility awareness, it's not about predicting what's going to happen. It's quite literally about learning how to identify and track your signs on a day-to-day basis. So each day, you're basically checking in, like it's today a fertile day or not. And um, with the method that I teach, which you know falls under the umbrella of the symptothermal, so what that means is we're looking at three main fertile signs. Your cervical mucus, which we talked about a little bit, cervical position changes, and basal body temperature changes. And so it's really interesting because as you approach ovulation, after, after you ovulate, you produce a significant amount of progesterone and that raises your resting basal body temperature. So if you know, you're a science geek like me, it's really exciting to be able to kind of plot it on a graph and actually see this physical evidence of ovulation, this physical change that happens in your body. And then we talked about cervical mucus. So you'd see it as you approach ovulation and then after you you ovulate, it goes away and then your cervix actually changes both in where it's located. So, uh, as you approach ovulation, the cervix is higher inside of the vagina. It's actually softer to the touch and it opens a little bit in order to a lot of it wants mother nature wants to get you pregnant so it's opening sperm can get in and so you can actually feel that because it'll often feel like there's a little dimple and then after ovulation it goes to a lower position in the vagina and is firmer to the touch and is closed and so you know i know that there's a lot of women who are listening especially if this is all new information to them that are kind of like what do you mean like how come we don't know this right that's what i hear the most from women it's like this is pretty basic i mean Although there's a lot of nuances to it, if a woman wants to use fertility awareness for birth control, uh, she would have to develop a practice of charting. So there's a difference between having a general awareness about your body and actually using a method like a fertility awareness based method for charting. So in order to do that, you actually have to check your signs every day. You have to write them down. You have to keep track. You have to know the rules because we have to kind of add a little buffer period around it to make sure that it falls with the science that it's going to be effective for you. Uh, So there is some work involved. But what's interesting is that even though it can get kind of technical when you're learning the method, it's so basic. The concept that around ovulation, there's some changes that we can observe. And then after ovulation, it shifts back and repeat, 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 right? Like, we should all know this. We should all be taught in junior high.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I started charting uh, for myself on the flow app and there's other, there's other apps out there that are great. There's a lot of free ones and stuff. Uh, but I, cause I want to know when angry Alice was coming to town. Cause <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> so I can know that. So I'm like, Oh, I'm not going crazy. It's just some hormones, you know, no problem. But you know, it's good. That's the day before uh, my menstruation starts. I get a little on the angry side or negative, And I, I just want to know when that's going to happen. So I can, let it happen and, you know, not get to not feed into it and know that this is just my hormones playing with my brain. (laughs) So I started charting for that reason. But for anyone listening that, you know, has some serious concerns, reproductive issues or fertility issues, um, do you work with, obviously you work with women. So how do you work with women and what kind of solutions and and problems are you solving for them?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I mean, because I'm my my main role is to support women to learn how to chart and understand their cycles so they can learn how it relates to their health. So for example, there's certain things that when you're charting your menstrual cycle, you know, in the beginning of our, our podcast together or our video together, uh, you know, I took you through the whole menstrual cycle and shared with you just all these different aspects of it. So when I'm working with a woman where, you know, the first step is to to chart and to And the the reason that we want to do that is to see, like, what is going on with your period? How long is it? What is going on with your cervical mucus? Like, if you have cervical mucus every single day all the time, that's a problem. If you never have it, it's a problem. You know, when is ovulation happening in the cycle? And how long is your luteal phase? And just by going through and looking at all these different aspects of the cycle, there's a lot of information you can gather and a lot of things that you could identify that I often wonder if you weren't charting, if you'd be able to identify. So for instance, in my case, when I was, so I started charting when I was about 18 or 19. So it was, um, I'm, I feel like my story is really You're interesting. Like the Zen master not, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I go that far, but I would say that it was kind of like, I don't know. I, I maybe I was born under a star or something like that, because it's really I feel very fortunate to have found it that young. Right. Yes. To, to, and to have that throughout my whole life. But anyway, so here I am, like 19 years old, charting away, thinking everything's wonderful. And I was, as I mentioned, in my post high school feminist phase. And I had just learned that, you know, the menstrual cycle doesn't have to be 28 days. And I thought, this is this is amazing. My cycle's 45 days. Like, I'm so unique. I'm so special. <laughs> and so then my charting instructor is like, whoa, uh-uh, wait a minute. 45 days is far too long for the cycle that's out of the normal range. And she's like, and what's with your temperatures? They're really low. I think you should get your thyroid tested. And so in my case, I mean, that is kind of one of those defining moments, which is kind of why I continue to do this work today. Uh, So although you can't look at a chart and diagnose somebody with, you know, you can't doctors diagnose people and I'm not a medical doctor, but by paying attention to those types of patterns, you can identify things like that. Um, I've supported a number of clients to identify symptoms of PCOS and thyroid issues. Uh, underlying gut issues or food sensitivity issues show up in the menstrual sh- uh, cycle chart in different ways. Issues with progesterone, stress hormone, cortisol show up and often the luteal phase is an interesting kind of marker of that. And other you know just certain types of fertility challenges whether it's a limited mucus situation or things like that there's a lot of specific information that you can gather on the chart and it it goes back to what we were talking about earlier the vital sign aspect of it and what really throws i think my clients for a loop is just how receptive your cycle is to things that are happening in your life. So, you know, stress is a really great example of that because if you have some sort of stressful event, say as you're approaching ovulation, and stress, we often think bad. I'm, you know, my boss is yelling at me or something, but it could be really happy. Your sister could be getting married and you have to fly to Tahiti to be a bridesmaid, but the flight is still stress for your body. And so often what you'll find is if you're paying attention to your cycles and you happen to have a kind of a stressful event before ovulation, your ovulation might be delayed. And if you know and understand that your period will always come about 12 to 14 days after that, then it changes the whole conversation, whereas like, am I late, am I pregnant, to oh, well, I ovulated, early, so I know my period will come a little bit later. Um, and similarly, if you experience some degree of stress after ovulation, you might find that it actually shortens your cycle a little bit. Um, Because there's this inverse relationship between our stress hormone cortisol and progesterone. Um, Cortisol is made from progesterone. So... Then it, it's so interesting how that would intertwine with the menstrual cycle. Uh, so I hope that answers the question. I feel like I'm kind of talking in circles, but no, just I love a lot. that
0: again. I learned something else. <laughs> I learned something new because it's it's interesting I you say you know stress will suppress an egg release, and I think a lot of women that are trying to get pregnant not successful. There's a lot of different stressors acting on our, our bodies that we may not be aware of. You know, like EMF is a big one with five the five G apocalypse. Apocalypse. Apoc- uh, I can't say that the five 5G apocalypse that's coming oh. and um, also with just nutritional stress and other things. If you're stressed, you're not going to release eggs as efficiently or at all uh, as you might. But that's so interesting how stress suppresses eggs, but then uh, can hasten the coming of your period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And cause spotting. But I think um, what's what's really useful about the cycle is, especially with the, the topic of stress, it's often kind of this... Um, intangible concept (laughs) because we talk about stress all the time. But when I'm working with a woman and we're looking at her charts cycle after cycle, we can see it. And so for a lot of women, it's what gives them permission to make some changes because there's two different main types of stress. There's the acute stressful situation or that day or that thing that happened. But then there's those more chronic situations, for instance, like if you have raging IBS, and there's always some degree of inflammation in your body, well, that can show up in your chart in a number of different ways. And when you see these chronic stress patterns, or the acute stress patterns, all of a sudden, it's like, well, I had this hunch that I was in the wrong profession, or that I should be looking for a different, you know, I should try to get myself in a different department, or I'm always using work examples, I suppose. But there's this, what I found it's really interesting is that the charts often give – as as a woman, like you, this is the first time you've actually seen literally how these things can affect your body in a physical way. And so often it's very helpful for me because I don't really have to say a whole lot. It's kind of like, well, um, for instance, if I'm working with uh, – there's – not everyone has an issue with gluten, but I've worked with a lot of women that have issues with gluten. And so an example of how it can show up in your chart is uh, I've seen a number of women who when they eat the gluten, if they have a sensitivity to it specifically, uh, they will it'll change their mucus patterns. So maybe they'll literally have mucus all the time or they might even experience abnormal bleeding throughout the cycle. And then when they take out the gluten, it'll go away and the cycle will – not necessarily going from like – a hot mess to perfect, but you'll see like a very clear distinction between when, when they were eating it versus when they weren't. So again, I'm not generalizing. This is not every woman. Not every woman has a gluten sensitivity, but I'm just giving that as, a, an, as an example. So it makes my job easier because then we can literally look at the chart and say, well, why don't you try this for a little while? Or why don't you try that for a little while? And then you can kind of see for yourself. And so then, you know, if you can clearly see that your actions affect your cycle, it puts a lot of power in your hands, especially for women who've been basically told that, oh, you have something wrong with your period, anything, um, literally pain, abnormal cycles, you know, whatever, anything under the sun, like take the pill. You often leave that feeling like there's nothing you can do. What is
0: that? What, (laughs) why are, if you have an irregular period... Or acne even, the doctor is telling you to go on the pill. It just seems crazy to me.
1: It's the standard of care for <laughs> for women. I don't know.
0: It's, yeah. And it's but like it's someone because that's they supposed don't... to help the help them and I know it's like someone they just want to regulate their period. I mean, some women it's normal to have a longer menstrual cycle. It's not about, you know, shortening it so you're fitting into this box.
1: Yeah. No, it's it, I've had a lot of time to think about what it is but I mean if you think about if you're going to a doctor you have to ask yourself what does that doctor have in their tool belt right Uh, doctors are not trained in nutrition that's not something that is done in medical school beyond I think I've heard doctors say that they had one afternoon one class on nutrition or something like that so if you're looking to have the type of support going to a practitioner who's going to say, well, you know, are you sleeping well? Let's take a look at your diet, all those types of things. Sometimes you have to get some other members of your healthcare team. You can't only rely on your doctor. Um, It's important to look at other healthcare professionals that are looking at your cycles from a functional perspective and especially practitioners who have experience specifically with the menstrual cycle and, you know, hormones and those types of women's I don't want to say women's issues, because I feel like then that's always minimized, but you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah, or reproductive issues. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it's because so many doctors, I think, also have feel like a responsibility when a patient is coming to them, they want to walk, walk out of the office with a solution, uh, something yes. or something that's going to make them feel better. So I think doctors also uh, can succumb to that as well. Um, so, uh, so tell us, how can someone listening uh, work with you to improve their fertility and, and, you know, troubleshoot some of their hormone and menstruation issues.
1: Well, thank you for that. I mean, first and foremost, I would say if you enjoyed our conversation today, everything we talked about and more is covered in my book, The Fifth Vital Sign. And uh, it's available on Amazon. And we're reco- I'm sure, it, the, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be before this comes out. But at the time we're rec- recording, my audiobook finally came out yesterday. Yay. <laughs> <I'm> so <excited. laughs> um, But yes, yeah, so it's available in all the formats. Uh, in terms of working with me specifically, I have group programs and one-on-one programs where I teach women to chart. And so some of the women are there because they want to learn fertility awareness for birth control. So they're ready to ditch the hormones and they want that away because it's it's amazing to be able to avoid pregnancy naturally with nothing other than understanding because you're not manipulating your body in any way, right? You're just kind of adjusting when you have unprotected sex in your cycle. Uh, so for women who are wanting to who are really serious about it and wanting to use it for birth control Uh, other women are trying to conceive actively and are wanting to get deeper into their menstrual cycle so that they can understand if there's anything that they can learn from it and improve their fertility naturally and uh, you know other women are planning to get pregnant and they just want to have this information so that when they're ready you know they're good to go and others just want to get that sense of the connection between their menstrual cycle and their health so wherever you're at um that's that's what that's what i do (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, and I I'm kind of in that perimenopause phase where I'm like, what is going on? Where's my period? I'm like, I don't know whether to be happy or sad <laughs> that it's not here. But uh, but yeah, but I'm charting mine too, just so I can you know know if you know when I'm kind of moving closer and closer to the my my golden years, <laughs> mm-hmm. so to speak.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting because I you know I work with women from a variety of ages. So some of the women I work with are in their 20s, uh, and then some are in their 40s, and uh, I think partly because I'm not yet in that stage. I haven't focused as much on it in my podcast, though I'm starting to get more and more interested about it. But I find that a lot of women are really kind of nervous and negative because of all the negative connotations associated with that stage of life. Like you're drying up or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But it's interesting because if you take care of your cycles and take care of yourself, just your body in general, and are able to cycle naturally and benefit from your natural estrogen and progesterone uh, throughout your reproductive life, then when you get to the stage of um, like the 10 years before menopause is perimenopause, so when you get to that stage and then you know we often think that it's going to be horrible and you're going to have hot flashes and it's just going to be this horrible terrible time um similar to how the menstrual cycle how i'm saying that it's like the vital sign you can think of your men- like pre-menopause symptoms in the same way because it's not supposed to be this horrific um up and down like just like it's just not supposed to be like that and if it is Similar to your menstrual cycle, it would indicate that there's things that are out of balance, out of alignment, maybe the toxin exposure, sleep deprivation, I don't know, all the different things, right? Um, But I guess what I also wanted to say is that... um, different cultures look at that time differently. And so one of the things that I've heard was that, you know, during our reproductive years, we have so much energy that we're devoting to our potential babies. And basically it's that energy that we're giving to everybody else. And when we hit menopause, we don't give that energy away anymore. We get to keep it. And I'm not sure if you've experienced this, Wendy, but I've been doing interviews, you know, for many years. I know you've been doing this for a long, long time as well. And every time I get to interview women who are past that stage, I always get the sense of wisdom and also
0: happiness
1: (laughs) and there's no filter anymore. Like they're also like not concerned with everybody's feelings. I often find that when I'm interviewing women who've passed that stage, They just say what they need to say and they're not apologizing. I'm still in my late 30s. So I feel like I'm still like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to offend anybody. But I feel like there's a lot of power with that time. So I just like to talk about it in a positive way because I think as long as we keep ourselves healthy and understand the connection between our cycles and our health and kind of let that guide us, it doesn't have to be this horrible time. It can actually be freeing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I know uh, a lot of them that they don't have hot flashes and they haven't had a rough go of the transition, and I'm looking forward to that also because I have my hormones under control, and I've been detoxing a long time, and have my nutrition on point, and exercise. So I'm doing everything right. So I'm not really worried about that. I don't really feel like I'm going to have a lot of negative side effects or hot flashes. And and tribal women, women in these you know traditional tribal cultures, they don't they don't have the hot flashes and the other kinds of issues that come with that our estrogen dominant society that comes with modern living. And so that's, it's not normal to have all that stuff, it's abnormal, so I like that you talk about that. Also like it's a vital sign, it's a sign that something is wrong that needs to be addressed, and it can be addressed, uh, for mm-hmm. sure. I've had a lot of women with uh, you know, hot flashes and negative side effects in transition going to menopause that reduced it dramatically by taking a lot of different measures, but beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, but thanks so much <laughs> for coming on, tell us where we can find you.
1: Um, Well, you can find me, um, you can find the Fertility Friday podcast in your favorite podcast player. Just search Fertility Friday. Um, You can get the first chapter of The Fifth Vital Sign for free over at thefifthvitalsignbook.com. And thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, Wendy. Yeah,
0: great. Thanks so much for coming on. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Myers Detox podcast, where we talk about all different types of topics related to heavy metal and chemical detoxification targeted detox supplementation detox protocols and biohacking techniques and and topics for women also like this podcast so thanks for tuning in and it's my pleasure to serve you every week to help you know make those connections and answer those questions and give you those aha moments that can dramatically impact your life so thanks for tuning in i'll talk to you guys very very soon